You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, October 26, 2021. I'm Cota Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. In today's episode, I go over updates in campus news and describe a new exhibit on mental health at the Fort Collins Museum of Discovery. After that, Eliza Droder will update us on CSU Athletics, and we hear from the KCSU music team with their podcast. Then, Coda discusses the accidental shooting of a cinematographer and the identification of an additional victim of serial killer John Wayne Gacy. Then we hear from Anton Schindler about baseball games getting interesting in his podcast, Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler. After that, Coda gives us new information on COVID-19 and explains updates on technology with Facebook, Apple, and Tesla. Let's move right into campus and local news. I'm Ellie Shannon, and this is Campus News for Tuesday. The Colorado State University football team takes on Boise State this upcoming Saturday, October 30th. The game will start at 5 p.m. at Canvas Stadium. The Associated Students of Colorado State University met on October 20th to discuss swearing in a new senator, a CSU student proposal, and more. Student Walker Sparling proposed to have a bike rack installed on the north side of campus near CSU Remote Parking Lot 740. According to Piper Piper Russell of the Collegian, the lot is about a mile away from the Lake Street parking garage and Aggie Village. ASCSU also discussed Resolution 1504. Support for hunger-free campus funding seeks to endorse Swipe Out Hunger's Hunger-Free Campus Bill and for the Colorado Department of Higher Education to find funding to support programs such as Rams Against Hunger, Russell of the Collegian reports. Walter Scott's foundation is living on as Walter Scott Jr. chose to expand the existing Scott Scholars program shortly before he died. Starting this academic year, undergraduate Scott Scholars will receive up to $22,000 per year towards tuition, housing, and meals, as well as CSU contributing $4,000 to that. Representatives of the Scott Foundation announced this on October 12th during a private event. Now on to local news. The election is coming up and early voting is happening now. On November 2nd, Colorado voters will have to decide between many different topics, including Amendment 78, Proposition 119, and Proposition 120. Amendment 78, Legislative Authority for Spending State Money, appeared on the ballot after a citizen initiative, also known as a petition. Proposition 119, The Learning Enrichment and Academic Progress Program was also placed on the ballot by a citizen initiative. If this passes, cannabis taxes will be raised by 5% to go towards certain Colorado youth access pay pay for out-of-school learning activities, according to Natalie Weiland of the Collegian. Finally, Proposition 120 is the third citizen initiative and is the property tax assessment rate reduction. If passed... This would lower existing property tax assessment rates for multifamily housing and lodging properties, as well as permit the state of Colorado to retain money that exceeds constitutional spending limits for the purpose of funding existing property tax exemptions. The Fort Collins Museum of Discovery recently opened a new exhibit called Mental Health, Mind Matters. The exhibit's goal is to address mental illness and the stigmas about it, and the hands-on interactive experience is open until January 2nd, 2022. When the exhibit originally hit Fort Collins, Larimer County Behavioral Health Services provided a $250,000 grant to the museum according to Austria Kahn of the Collegian. The Fort Collins Museum of Discovery is located at 408 Mason Court in Fort Collins. Seven restaurants in Larimer County require reinspection after failing to pass the county's three-tiered health inspection rating. Establishments with violations of 0 to 49 points pass, those with 50 to 109 points require reinspection, and any with more than 110 points face closure. Full reports on restaurants can be found at larimer.org food. The mask mandate went into effect for Larimer County on October 20th. Masks are required in all public indoor places or venues. The length of the mandate is still unknown. As always, make sure to tune into the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. 
Thanks, I'm Ellie Shannon, and keep listening to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. Hey, this is the Red Scare, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. My name is Eliza Drotart, and this is your RMR Sports Report. In CSU football news, there was a close loss to the Utah State Aggies 24-26 on Friday. The rushing leaders for this week were David Bailey, 30 attempts for 159 yards and two separate rushing touchdowns. Quarterback Todd Centeno ran for 26 yards in eight attempts. The top receivers this week, Trey McBride, six receptions for 44 yards, Dante Wright with four catches for 71 yards, and Gary Williams with three catches for 80 yards and a touchdown. On the defense, there were eight sacks for 52 yards loss on the defense, Cameron Carter having six solo tackles and 14 total tackles, and a sack for seven-yard loss, Daquan Jackson having eight solo tackles and 15 total tackles. Quarterback Todd Santeo threw for 289 yards, 18 for 29 on passes, with a 62% completion rate. One touchdown, one interception, and was sacked once. Their next game is this Saturday at home against Boise State. In women's soccer, the girls tied 1-1 against Boise State in double overtime with the goal by Kristen Noonan. With that tie against Boise State, the girls clinch a spot in the Mountain West Soccer Championship. Their next match will be against Wyoming on Thursday at 3 o'clock. In women's volleyball, the girls beat San Diego State 3-2 and UNLV 3-0 in straight sets. Annie Sullivan and Kiara Lieber led in kills, with Sullivan leading in total attacks. Sierra Pritchard led in assists and blocking assists, and Alexa Romeliotis led in digs, and she was named the Mountain West Defensive Player of the Week, The team now leads the Mountain West standings, and their next match is Thursday night against Air Force in Colorado Springs. In cross-country in the Nutty Comb Wisconsin Invitational, the girls placed 6th and the men placed 10th. Their next event will be the Mountain West Conference. In men's golf, the team placed 14 at the golf club in Georgia Collegiate. In women's tennis at the beach tennis tournament, Bushkova and Mahajevac won in straight sets to take the IT Regional Champs title. They will be heading to the New Mexico Fall Invite this weekend. In women's swim and dive, the girls won against Idaho, University of Denver, UMARY, and Colorado State of Mines. If you are interested in student tickets, go to csuram.evenue.net to get student tickets for volleyball, football, basketball, and more. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. Hello and welcome to KCSU's Halloween Battle of the Bands. I'm Stevie Supernova from KCSU's Music Department and today I'll be interviewing creatures of the audience on their music taste. Here we go. All right, so hi, who are you? Hello, my name's Morg the Cyborg. I'm a cyborg zombie. I died many millennia ago, but um, I was brought to life by the power of AI again. Wow, modern technology. Right? (laughs) Morg, what is your favorite go-to Halloween song? My favorite one right now has got to be Be a Body by Grimes. 
because I'm a body, but also a robot. You're a body, perhaps. Just be a body. <laughs> and what artists do you usually listen to to get in the Halloween spirit? What really gets me inspired is just listening to the voices in my head, listening to the screams in my head. Sometimes, like, my programmer's voice will play in my head, and that really frightens me. That's just what has been spooking me out lately. Totally. If you can make a spooky album of your own, which Halloween creature would you want to produce it? The Halloween creature that I'd want to produce it would definitely be Elon Musk. <gasps> definitely. Um, yeah, I would just send him a quick text. You know, he's very wealthy, so I feel like he could get me some really good production gear. And, you know, maybe he'll turn me into a Tesla, which would be awesome. But the Tesla would only be programmed to play my album. So <laughs> what would you name that album? The Smorgasport. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me here today. <laughs> Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Happy Halloween. So, hi. Who are you? Hello. My name is Faith and I'm a fairy. Hi, Faith. What's your favorite go-to Halloween song? The first one I thought of is This Is Halloween because I know it from Just Dance. I've done that song uh, quite a few times on there, so thought it would be very fitting. Very fitting. What artists do you listen to to get in the spooky spirit? I like to listen to Vampire Weekend. I think they have some pretty good jams. Yeah. If you could make a spooky album of your own, which Halloween creature would you want to produce it? So I think that a good spooky creature would be a dark angel. I would want them to produce it because they're kind of like evil, but also they could have once been a good angel, two sides of a coin. Yeah. And what would you name it? What would you name the album? Flaming pine cones rolling down hills. So I thought that was pretty good. Um, thanks so much for joining me today. Yes, thank you for having me. Happy Halloween. So, hello, who are you? Uh, I'm the Headless Horseman. I like to listen to music really, really loud and with huge, big, like, honking speakers. I like to hold, like, a balloon sometimes or, like, just my pumpkin head in front of me so I can really, really feel the vibrations. Well, what's your favorite go-to Halloween song, Headless Horseman? I like Confusion Spell by Sudden Death. It's just insanity. It goes so hard. It bumps the bass. It makes me feel all crazy in my deep bones, and it makes my head separation vibrate, so it's pretty cool. That is so spooky. <laughs> yeah, I got my horse to shuffle, which was pretty cool. He thought that was awesome, so that song really hits for that. You're a team. Uh, what artists do you listen to to get in the spooky spirit? Uh, I listen to all sorts of different types of artists. I like that really weird, unsettling stuff. It makes you feel just so weird. So if you had the chance to make your own spooky album, which Halloween creature would you want to produce it? I think I'd want werewolves to produce it. Because they just, they howl, which it just sounds really, really good on the tracks. And they'll be like running and stuff, so they got all the stompiness in it. It's so perfect. They really know how to make a track. So what would you name that album? I think I'd just call it Stompy Spooky Griminess because they just do the weirdest stuff and they're always howling at the moon. I'm like, so spooky. I couldn't have said it better. Thank you so much for joining me today. Happy Halloween. Thanks for having me. Hi. Hi. Who are you? My name is Gertrude. I'm a little ghosty. I died in the 1930s. It was an overdose, unfortunately, but that's what happens when all the medicine is meth. Oh, tragic. And what's your favorite go-to Halloween song? I think Monster Mash or anything in Rocky Horror. And what artist would you listen to to get into the spooky spirit? Well, I can really only listen to other dead people. So this year I'm listening to a lot of Prince. <laughs> Okay, and if you could make a spooky album of your own, which Halloween creature would you want to produce it? I definitely would want some aliens to produce my music because their ideas are really just out of this world. You know, gotta expand our range a little. And what would you name the album? Ghost Whore. I'm just a little spooky slut. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited and I'll be haunting your dreams later. Yes, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. 
dingin. Woo. Hi, thanks for joining me. Who are you? I am Mort, and I am a vampire long dead. Oh, mm-hmm. welcome, Mort. Thank you. What is your favorite go-to Halloween song? Creature of the Night by the Rocky Horror Picture Show cast. I just really relate. I often also give people an unpleasant shock amidst the night, so I feel heard. What artists do you listen to to get in the spooky spirit? Lots of pop punk, you know, Fall Out Boy, Blink-182, because they, like me, are very dramatic and angsty on the outside, but dead inside. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of skater kids listen to kind of pop punk, and uh, I hang around a lot of skate parks hoping for skinned knees, so... If you ever can make a Halloween album of your own, which spooky creature would you want to produce it? I think I would want a witch to produce my album because, you know, they're just putting magic down on the tracks. They're always mixing stuff up in a cauldron, And I know that they could mix up some really good tracks for me on my album. What would you name that album? The album would probably be called Out for Blood because at first it would just sound like I want revenge. People will think it's just an album full of diss tracks, but really I am out for blood. (laughs) So I'm just going to be singing about my life and I hope it resonates with the people. Wow, thank you so much for your input. Thank you. Happy Halloween. You too. So who are you? (laughs) Sorry, one second. My name is Ozymandias. Sorry, I had to take my bandage off. I'm a mummy. Nice to meet you. (laughs) What's your favorite go-to Halloween song? It's definitely going to have to be Thriller, you know, it just really gets me in the mood. Plus, I was an extra in the music video for Thriller, so I really have a personal connection to it. Gosh. Yeah, I was one of the mummies dancing in the background. That is something to put on your resume, for sure. Oh, it's like a 6,000-year-old resume, so I have a lot on it. (laughs) What artists do you listen to to get in the spooky spirit? So it's kind of unique, but I actually listen to the Mummy soundtrack composed by Jerry Goldsmith. Most people don't know it, but... I was actually a special consultant on the soundtrack because he wanted to have an accurate mummy sound. So he included me on it, you know, because I'm a mummy, obviously. But apparently it's like a bad look when you have mummies like publicly advising you or just any undead creatures. So my name was unfortunately never included. If you ever got the chance to make your own spooky album, which Halloween creature would you want to produce it? Ideally, I'd like another mummy because, you know, mummies understand mummies best. But I could, I could be okay with a skeleton, I think. Mostly just because they, they, they're really good you know, like using their own bodies as a like musical instrument they're you know drumming on their tibias and rattling on their ribs and just having a grand old time with those bones so it's pretty they're pretty accomplished musicians what do you think you would name the album i'd have to call it king of kings because i am ozymandias king of kings tremble upon my works ye mighty in despair thank you so much oh of course i really appreciate yeah you bet happy halloween happy halloween So who are you? Oh, I have assumed the identity of a man that used to be called Roger Fillmore. I am what you call a creeper. Oh. Okay, Roger. What's your favorite go-to Halloween song? Oh, yeah. Uh, that would have to be Creep by... TLC. He could have more shrieks, but as a song to creep at night, too, it works pretty well. Okay, sir. I'm, I'm going to need you to take a step back, please. Oh, yeah. You getting too close to me? Yes. <laughs> okay. What artist do you listen to to get in the spooky spirit? Oh, yeah. Cheryl Crow, 
Well, Jesus, talk about an iconic creep. <laughs> Good answer. And if you could make a spooky album of your own, which Halloween... <laughs> who would you want to produce it? I think I would like to hear the Grim Reaper drop another album since he hasn't produced anything since the Black Plague. What would you name that album? Yes. I think he would probably call it Grim Prospects or Grim Hymns. Great. Thank you so much, Mr. Mm, Creep. Mm, that's, thank you. That's all we have time for today. Stevie. Huh? <laughs> Can I have another handshake? I'm all right. I'm all right. Thank you. Happy Halloween, Bye. sir. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. Well, folks, that's all the time I have for today. I need to go wash my hands five or six times. Thanks so much for joining me, Stevie Supernova, at KCSU's Halloween Battle of the Bands. Catch me next time on the Music Mondays podcast. And don't forget to listen to 90.5 KCSU. Listening to KCSU Fort Collins at 90.5 FM. Tune in to. What's up, guys? It's Hannah Conda. Listen to my show 1 3 p.m. on Tuesdays. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to National News Highlights for October 26th. California faced a massive storm Monday, which flooded highways and cut off power from over 300,000 residents. According to the Associated Press, rock slides and mud flows occurred in the northern region of the state, where forests and other natural areas were burned down by wildfires in recent years. California, which has struggled with droughts for years, saw the setting of new rainfall records Monday, while the Sierra Nevada saw intense snow. Pacific Gas and Electric reported that about 130,000 customers were still without electricity, and 250,000 had electric services fully restored. In addition to the storm, an atmospheric river came into the state. An atmospheric river describes a large stream of moisture from the Pacific Ocean. The next story discusses child neglect and details on the death of a child under 13 years old. For those who may be sensitive to this type of information, KCSU recommends changing the channel or turning down audio on this story for about one minute. Harris County Police found three children abandoned in an apartment with the dead body of another child Sunday. According to Andy Rose and Rolf Ellis at CNN, the living siblings were ages 15, 10, and 7. The 15-year-old called authorities, saying his dead brother's body was in the room beside his and that his parents had abandoned the apartment several months earlier. The 15-year-old also told officers his 9-year-old brother had died a year earlier. Harris County Sheriff Ed Gonzalez said that it appeared the oldest child had been taking care of his younger brothers as best as he could. He also said that the children were all in poorer health conditions and showed signs of malnourishment and injury. The mother of the children is being interviewed as part of an investigation alongside her boyfriend. The cause of death is still under investigation by the police department for one of the younger children. Harris County is located in Texas. After the accidental death of a cinematographer on the set of Rust, activists called to ban real guns from sets. According to Joe Hernandez at National Public Radio, Alex Baldwin fatally shot Helena Hutchins and wounded director Joel Souza after being given a prop gun, which he was told was safe to shoot. 
NPR reports that crew members already raised concerns about production safety before the shooting, and many filmmakers already moved away from using live weapons and shifted to adding in effects during post-production. Many shows and producers began banning the use of live weapons following Thursday's shooting on the set of Rust, with ABC banning their use in The Rookie and Amazon Prime vowing to do the same in their series The Boys. The Boys showrunner tweeted, quote, No more guns with blanks on any of my sets ever. We'll use VFX muzzle flashes. Who's with me? End quote. A variety of other film staff posted in solidarity with the killed cinematographer, saying that real guns have no place on film sets, with some saying that even the use of blanks is dangerous and not worth the increase in realism of the scenes. A new victim has joined the list of those murdered by John Wayne Gacy. According to the Associated Press, Francis Wayne Alexander, who was in his early 20s when Gacy killed him in the mid-1970s, was never reported missing, but his remains were found in the crawl space under Gacy's home. Gacy was convicted for the murders of 33 young men and boys. Alexander's family chose not to make the report in the 1970s, believing that he had just decided not to talk to his family anymore. In a statement, Alexander's sister, Carolyn Sanders, wrote, quote, It is hard, even 45 years later, to know that the fate of our beloved Wayne. He was killed at the hands of a vile and evil man. Our hearts are heavy, and our sympathies go out to the other victims' families. We can now lay to rest what happened and move forward by honoring Wayne. End quote. 26 sets of remains were found in the crawl space in Gacy's home near Chicago, along with three other victims buried on the property and four other bodies found in waterways south of the Chicago area. Alexander's body was found using DNA evidence. Relatives of potential victims of Gacy helped police solve a minimum of 11 crimes through DNA submission. These cases ended up being separate from Gacy's murders. Additionally, a man in Oregon was found alive, having no idea that his family had been looking for him. That's all for National News Highlights. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now we're going to be hearing from Anton Schindler with his podcast, Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 30 of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. Since we were last here, the Dodgers ended up outlasting the Giants for a spot in the National League Championship Series to play the Braves. And, well, so far, let me tell you, what a series this has been. As of right now, the Braves are up three games to one on the Dodgers and have outscored the latter 22-14. to 14. The Braves walked off Game 1 and Game 2 thanks to an Austin Riley walk-off single in Game 1 and another walk-off single off the glove of Corey Seager in Game 2. The last time a team walked off Games 1 and 2 in the same postseason series was the Marlins in 1997. The Dodgers scored 4 in the 8th inning to beat the Braves 6-5 in Game 3, and the Braves capped off what could be the final game in LA 9-2. If the Braves win Game 5, it'll be the first time that they'll be off to the World Series since 1999. Meanwhile, in the ALCS, an incredible battle has been raging on between the Boston Red Sox and the Houston Astros, who will play Game 6 on Friday, October 22nd. The Astros took Game 1 from some late-game heroics, winning 5-4, but it kind of seemed like the Red Sox took that a bit personally. Game 2 finished with a 9-5 Red Sox win with the first of three Grand Slams in two ALCS games coming off the bat of J.D. Martinez in, get this, the first inning. (laughs) The very next inning, however, it was Rafael Devers' turn. With the bases loaded and one away in the second inning, Devers clobbered the second Grand Slam of the game to put the Red Sox up 8-0 in the second inning. It was the first time that that feat had ever been achieved in postseason history. Game 3 followed a pretty similar path, as in the second inning once again, Kyle Schwarber decided that he wanted in on the fun. On a three balls and no strike count, he got a hold of a pitch and scored the third Grand Slam of the series for the Red Sox. And then, Astros pitching decided to turn it up a little bit. After giving up 21 runs in Game 2 and Game 3, the Astros have held the Red Sox to just three runs 
while scoring 18 of their own. So, really, this series, I think, is still very much up for grabs. Anyway, let's get on with the episode. So, as in all sports, and, well, really just in life, weird stuff happens. Now, it may not happen much, but it still does happen. In today's episode, I want to talk about some of the really weird stuff that has happened in the history of baseball and break it down into small, bite-sized pieces that will amaze and maybe confuse you. Let's start with one of the greatest promotion night fails in recent history, known as Disco Demolition Night. Now, let me set the scene for you. In Chicago, there was a radio DJ by the name of Steve Dahl. Dahl decided that he wanted to do an anti-disco event as the huge rise of disco in the late 70s was causing some pretty big backlash to rock music fans. So, Dahl proposed a promotion to the Chicago White Sox that included blowing up a box of disco records, many of which were brought in by fans. Basically, what the deal was is that every fan that brought a disco record into the stadium was admitted into the stadium for just 98 cents. So, you know, knowing that, I think you can kind of see where this is going. The White Sox were hoping for a pretty modest turnout of around 20,000 fans for the event as it would take place in between a doubleheader. 50,000 fans showed up and completely packed the stadium with their records in hand. Some fans were even sneaking in as the first game started, which caused all of the security personnel to go to the gates and try to stop those people from coming in. However, by doing this, the field was left practically unattended, and fans started throwing these records like frisbees into the crowd and at the players on the field. The Tigers' designated hitter, Rusty Staub, recalled the records flying through the air and sticking straight up out of the ground. He urged his teammates to literally wear batting helmets when they were playing their positions, as it wasn't just one, but many records that started to litter the field and literally stick into the field, you know, because it's a record. (laughs) And I mean, that wasn't the only thing. The game had to be paused multiple times as an incredible amount of firecrackers and empty beer bottles and lighters were tossed all over the field. But the game eventually finished, and as Dahl ran out onto the field to light the box up, he told the crowd, Quote, this is now officially the world's largest anti-disco rally. Now listen, we took all the disco records you brought tonight, which was a lie, by the way. Uh, Clerks actually stopped collecting the records pretty much right away. But he continued saying, we got them in a giant box and we're going to blow them up real good. Oh boy. Dahl set off the explosives, which obviously left a massive burning hole in the grass, (laughs) and as many of the security guards were still watching the gates, the fans started to storm the field. People started climbing up on the foul poles, setting more records on fire, and tearing up the grass. They completely destroyed one of the batting cages and literally stole all of the bases that were stuck in the ground. Harry Carey, the all-time great sportscaster, tried to settle the riot down on the PA system, with no avail, and the scoreboard started flashing, please return to your seats, but yeah, as you can imagine, it didn't work. It wasn't until Chicago police, dressed in full riot gear, arrived to restore any sort of order, but by that time, the Tigers skipper, Sparky Anderson, decided that it was unsafe for his team, understandably, who had at this point barricaded themselves in the dugout to stay away from just the riot of fans. I mean, it was just unsafe for the team to play another game. Well, that and also there was literally a bonfire in center field. (laughs) On the topic of rather questionable promotions, let's talk about the Cleveland Indians and their 10-cent beer night. Now, 
The Indians had actually done this promotion before with actually pretty good success a few years before, known as Nickel Beer Day. But this incident in 1974 came with some bad blood. You see, a week earlier, the Indians and the Rangers met and had a bench-clearing brawl that left a few fans pretty unhappy with the Rangers. So, if you think about it, 10-cent beer night kind of just was at the wrong time. The deal was a pretty good one, though. I mean, for just 10 cents, you could buy a cup of low alcohol, of course, beer, but you were limited to six beers per purchase. However, there was no limit on the amount of purchases that you could make, so you could just keep coming back with six beers, and yeah, they couldn't stop you. So, I mean, like the disco demolition night, I think you can kind of see where this is going. It didn't also help that before the games were even started, there was just a lot of trash talking that was going on between the two teams and the team's fan bases. Apparently, a Cleveland reporter, after the first brawl game, asked the Rangers manager, Billy Martin, are you going to take your armor to Cleveland? To which Martin replied, nah, they won't have enough fans there to worry about. So, yeah, I think some of the Cleveland baseball fans kind of took that to heart, and even some of the Cleveland sports talk show hosts and the Indians radio announcer decided to talk up the rivalry a little bit and get some fans to the ball game to support the Indians and, and light this fire. And it worked. 25,134 fans showed up, twice the expected number, for that Tuesday night game. As the game went on, fans continued to run onto the field. They started shooting off firecrackers randomly into the stands. They threw hot dogs and empty bottles onto the field. And as the Indians would eventually tie up the game in the bottom of the ninth, it just all kind of went downhill. A 19-year-old teenager ran out onto the field in an attempt to steal Jeff Burrow's hat, who at the time was one of the guys from the Rangers outfield. Trying to chase this fan down, you know, to get his hat back, he tripped and fell. Now, the Rangers players thought that he was attacked by the fan that stole his hat, so they came out with baseball bats, charging the fan. And in return, more fans from all around the stadium started storming the field, wielding whatever they could find, and in some cases, pieces of chairs that they tore off. Indians players, although they had their differences, ran out with bats of their own in an attempt to protect the Rangers players from the Indians fans. Because the hundreds of fans that had now surrounded the Rangers players, I mean, they felt that they were truly in danger. The zoo-like atmosphere sent the players into the dugouts, locked away. The game was forfeited to the Rangers as the Cleveland Police Department finally restored order. One really strange thing that I found that has to do with this is a player named Rusty Torres. Torres was one of the players in both of these riots that I've mentioned, as well as one other that occurred in the final game for the Washington Senators before they relocated. But I just think it's a crazy, odd coincidence that he was part of, like, three of the biggest riots in the history of baseball. Now, another really weird instance happened in spring training when the big unit, Randy Johnson, was just trying to prove himself on the mound for the Diamondbacks. As it eventually was added to the legend that was the big unit, Randy hit a bird with a pitch. Seriously, his fastball was that good. During an at-bat, Randy Johnson threw a fastball towards the plate that was completely intercepted by a careless avian. The ball hit the bird so hard that all you could see was just an explosion of feathers and a ball rolling away that was later deemed a uh, no pitch. Now, if you've never seen this video for the accident, it's just incredible. However, according to Randy Johnson, he was considered a bird killer and there were a few organizations that actually considered filing charges on the bird's behalf. But since it was just such a freak accident, there were no charges ever pressed. Funnily enough, though, 
Johnson went on to win his fourth of five Cy Young Awards that year, as well as a World Series title. Now, this technically has never happened since, at least at a professional level, but there have been a handful of really close calls, including when the Indians walked off a ball game as a hit into center field hit a bird that was trying to fly away, causing the outfielder Coco Crisp to completely miss it as it rolled into the outfield. So, kind of the same. The final weird occurrence that I want to cover actually happened in a game between the Colorado Rockies and the Arizona Diamondbacks, and one of the weirdest reasons for a delay I think that I've ever heard of before. On May 17th, 2012, a swarm of bees invaded Coors Field, seemingly out of nowhere. As the top of the fifth inning rolled around, a huge swarm of angry bees decided to fly around and cling to a pole in one of the camera bays on the first base side of the dugout. Although no players had to come off the field, one of the Diamondbacks pitchers was attracting quite a few of them because of the scent of his hair gel. Now, the game did eventually resume after a beekeeper came and sucked up all the little bees in a vacuum-like device in order to transport the hive somewhere else. But it's not the first time that insects had become a problem in an MLB game. During a playoff game against the Yankees and the Indians in 2007, a huge swarm of midges, of which Ohioans call Canadian soldiers, infested the field. In between innings, cans of bug spray started making their way around the field as the umpires and the players were really just trying to do anything they could to get the little bugs away from them. Some Yankees players even complained that they literally could not see what they were doing, as bugs just kept hitting them and running into them and causing them to gag every time they had their mouths open. And honestly, looking at the footage, I don't think that they were lying. The air looked so dense of bugs, and there was a pass ball that led to tying the game and other terrible command issues from the pitchers that really just continued on to the night, probably because they were just so distracted and so unfocused. The Indians did finally win the game after 11 innings, but, I mean, I just can't imagine how hard it was to focus. I mean, not only was it a playoff game, but you also had a million flies circling around you, landing on your face, and so on. I mean, just talking about it is making my skin crawl. So, in next week's episode, I want to talk about a very strange case. One of what would have been one of the greatest pitchers of all time that never actually pitched in the major leagues. And the story behind why is just such a weird one. Thank you for listening. Support for KCSU comes from Panhandler's Pizza, serving Ram Country since 1975. Located in Fort Collins on College Avenue, just south of Drake Road, Panhandler's Pizza is now available for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery. Offering pan pizza slices, sliced meals, specialty pizzas, wings, and salads. Learn more about Panhandler's Pizza by visiting panhandlerspizza.com. I'm Kuda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Tuesday. Colorado State University reports that over 89% of on-campus students and employees are either fully or partially vaccinated against the virus that causes COVID-19. The university reports a cumulative total of nearly 3,900 cases of COVID-19 since case counting began in May 2020, with 12 new student cases and three new staff cases reported Monday. Larimer County and the Centers for Disease Control report high levels of community transmission for COVID-19. Masks are required in all indoor public spaces in the county, regardless of vaccination status. Larimer County recommends that in high transmission risk periods, residents take the following precautions. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if you are not already. 
Wear masks, including in private indoor spaces if members of another household are present. Be sure your mask has a snug fit, and consider wearing a KN95 mask. Postpone all gatherings if possible, and if the event must occur, consider requiring all attendees to be vaccinated or limiting the number of invited households. If the event is indoors, consider moving it outdoors. Monitor your health and get tested for COVID-19 if you have any concerns over exposure or symptoms. Larimer County reports a total of over 39,600 cases of COVID-19, along with just under 315 deaths. The county reports a case rate of over 290 cases per 100,000 residents in the past week, and 101 COVID patients are currently being treated in area hospitals. Intensive care units are full at 107% utilization. The state of Colorado reports over 727,000 cases of COVID-19, along with over 8,300 deaths. 7.6 million vaccines have been administered across the state, and over 3.5 million Coloradans are fully immunized against the virus that causes COVID-19. The Centers for Disease Control reports over 45.3 million total cases of COVID-19 in the United States, along with over 734,000 deaths. Over 66% of the total U.S. population received at least one dose of an approved vaccine, with that number raising to over 77% of people over the age of 12 and nearly 80% of the adult population. Information from today's segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the Centers for Disease Control. That's all for COVID-19 updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Up next is Tech News. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is Tech News Updates for Tuesday. Despite Apple threatening to remove Facebook and Instagram from its app store two years ago, the company has done minimal work in solving the Mideast made selling and trading accounts on its platforms. According to John Gambrell and Jim Gomez at the Associated Press, some of the content allowed on the site included confirmed cases of abuse from Filipina maids' personal accounts. An internal document from Facebook looking into the matter said, quote, In our investigation, domestic workers frequently complained to their recruitment agencies of being locked in their homes, starved, forced to extend their contracts indefinitely, unpaid, and repeatedly sold to other employers without their consent, end quote. Despite Facebook claiming to have cracked down on the issue, looking up the Arabic word for maid often still shows up with advertisements of African and Asian women, along with their ages, who are being sold for maid labor. These accounts often exploited female laborers from outside of the Middle East, who ended up being abused once placed with their employers. Tesla's inaction in improving safety for its autopilot feature has caused alarm for the National Transportation Safety Board which gave recommendations for Tesla and five other auto brands related to adding driver monitoring systems in 2017. These recommendations came after a Tesla owner was killed after the Tesla autopilot feature failed to respond accurately and crashed into a truck that was crossing a highway. Within 90 days, the other automakers responded and updated their own safety features with the NTSB approving of the new programming. Tesla never officially responded to the recommendations and only increased notifications and alerts when drivers removed their hands from the steering wheel. In a letter to the Tesla CEO, Elon Musk, the NTSB chair, Jennifer Hammondy, said she was not only concerned about their lack of response, but also about additional autopilot-related crashes since 2017. Hammondy said, quote, If you are serious about putting safety front and center in Tesla vehicle design, I invite you to complete action on the safety recommendations we issued four years ago, end quote. While the NTSB is able to make recommendations, they technically lack the authority to enforce those recommendations as requirements since they are not a regulatory agency. The National Highway Traffic Administration, which issues recalls and can enforce recalls when they impact safety, is currently working on an investigation into autopilot's potential defects. Another former Facebook employee came forward to address the company's issues with misinformation. Yael Einstadt worked as the global head of elections integrity operations for political advertising at Facebook in 2018 and said, quote, It was very clear to me that advertising may not be the most important thing on the platform, but it's paid speech. We're putting labels on the ads to make them look even more credible, and we're giving political actors targeting tools to target people with its messaging. And if we aren't even fact-checking that and we're allowing politicians to use advertising to sow sow different messages to different groups, that was dangerous, end quote. Additionally, Eisenstadt said she believes she was pushed out for her ideas on slowing the spread of political misinformation. She also said that experts at Facebook, along with third-party experts, warned the company about issues with political advertising years ago. 
Warnings focused on how the software used by Facebook often incentivized advertisers to include misinformation or more extreme perspectives, as they brought more attention than other posts. That's all for Tech News Highlights. I'm Kota Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. And now, for the weather. Today, we saw scattered showers with a high of 65 and a low of 39, with heavy winds reaching 22 miles per hour. Wednesday will be cloudy with a high of 59 and a low of 39, with winds reaching up to 23 miles per hour. Thursday will will break the trend with a high of 63 and a low of 38, with sunny skies and moderate winds reaching under 15 miles per hour. And for Friday, you'll have to check back in this Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the Rocky Mountain Review, only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. As always, if you missed any part of this episode, you can check us out on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts by searching KCSU News. I'm Kota Babcock, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, Stephanie Keel, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Eric, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Lindsay Johnson, Eliza Droder, Samuel Bailey, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.